You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This series, we're jumping around a little bit uh, between books, but we'll, we'll hang out in one passage. And so today, uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 1. Now, it's going to take us a little bit of work to get there because I uh, want to make sure that, that in this series, we're, we're tracking with each step of the way as we're, as we're going here. Uh, and, and so uh, there's going to be a little bit of context that I just want to give us, and I, I want to set this up well so that we're all ready to receive the Word in the way uh, that God intended it. And so... Um, let me just uh, tell you a little bit of a story. At the end of October, Katie and I had the opportunity to get together with other pastors and their wives from the Great Commission Collective, and we went to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, now, I had been there one time before. Uh, Katie had never been there, and so we decided that we would buy an extra night and explore a little bit. And um, when you're in Phoenix, you're about two hours south, an hour and a half south of Sedona, which is just a beautiful place to go. And so we decided that we would make that trek up to Sedona. And we were feeling ambitious, and we, we really wanted to see something spectacular. And so we decided to do one of the more popular trails, which is called Cathedral Rock. Now, let me just give some backstory here as well. Uh, being from the East Coast, of course, we didn't know where we're going and so we had to use our GPS, and, and I often say that uh, the GPS saved our marriage uh, because um, before GPS, uh, me being me, always used to print out all of the MapQuest uh, directions and like from any possible contingency, put them on a clipboard, hand them to Katie, and she had to be my navigator. Uh, and so that's how we did our, our honeymoon all the way down to Tennessee, and let's just say that uh, my sanctification need was proven in patience with my wife on the way back, uh, and so, so we just, you know, like the GPS saved our marriage. So back to Sedona and the miracle of GPS, uh, we, we put that in the GPS, we arrived at Cathedral Rock, and, and this was the site that we saw. It's beautiful, right? Like, it's awesome. And we were going to be hiking right in between the, that, like, left rock there and, and the, the little, you know, the two pillars that are there. And, uh, and yet, when you're an average hiker with low-traction sneakers, that could be kind of intimidating, wouldn't you agree? And, and at that point, we, we had a choice. Do we go all in and, and make the ascent, or do we choose a lower easier trail with much less beauty. And one of the things that, that convinced me to do this was, was seeing all of the average hikers with average sneakers walking back down the trail towards me, having successfully accomplished this. And so we decided to make the climb, and this was the view from the top. And, and I would say that was worth it. I, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It really, uh, it, it, it we had encouragement along the way. We had other people showing us how to do it. It was awesome. Uh, but this experience of getting to Cathedral Rock and then wondering if we could make it up the trail is, is similar, not identical, but similar to where all of us start out on the way of a disciple. If we had pictured the way of a disciple like a path, it might look something like this. We all start out uh, not even knowing how to, to get to the first step of the way, right? And, and we don't even know where the beginning of the path is. 
And yet in his marvelous direction, God leads us there. And he puts the people he's calling in positions where they're going to hear the gospel proclaimed. We will call that someone who is engaged. It's one of the first steps on the way of a disciple. They're not even believers yet, and yet they're engaged by God. And if you're here this morning or you're watching us online, uh, consider yourself engaged by the Lord. He's, He's the one who's brought you here. He's the one who's put you in this position. He's worked in your life to the point that you are now within earshot of the awesome news of Jesus Christ. And, and God engages people, not, not so, just so that they can be in, in, a, in a ritual or, or going through some motions. He engages people so that they can hear the good news that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And that even though our sin has separated us from God, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to live the perfect life that we could not live. He fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. He, he died the death that we deserve to die. Each one of us deserves death because of our sin. And Jesus died in our place for our sin. And then he conquered the enemy that we could not conquer. Satan, sin, and death. And he did it by rising from the dead. Jesus is Savior and Lord over all, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Once a person has heard that message clearly proclaimed, they've been evangelized, they've heard the good news of the gospel. As people take these steps of the pathway, the, the church is primarily focused on proclamation, on proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord, because there's going to be a whole lot of things that they're going to need to understand about the way of a disciple, right? But without understanding Jesus first, none of it makes sense. If we don't get Jesus, all of the things that he calls us to do are like, they're completely out there. But once they've heard the gospel, every person must count the cost. Is it worth potentially losing my life to see the heights, the beauty, and the glories of God? Or am I going to settle for some of the lesser glories of the lower trails? That's the critical decision that we face. Will we receive the gospel through repentance and faith, or will we reject it and go our own way? And so in, it's this section that you see up on the screen, this critical turning point in the discipleship pathway that we want to examine as we study today. You're going to see this diagram uh, continue to unfold as we go throughout the weeks. But remember, our, our vision for this series is this. Every person taking their next step on the way of a disciple together. Every person, that's you, taking their next step, not not all the steps, the next step, in the way of a disciple that's following Jesus in every part of our lives, completely submitting our lives to him. And we're doing that together. You cannot walk the way of a disciple alone. It's impossible. It is not possible to walk the way of a disciple alone. But in order for anyone to continue walking in the way, they must take this step. They they must become a disciple. 
Now, now last week we answered the question, uh, what is a disciple? And does anyone remember the definition? Anyone remember? All right, I want you to commit this to memory, okay? So I'm going to give it to you again. A disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. Okay, you got that? Let's say it together. A disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. Everybody again together. A disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. You need to say it three times. So a disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. A disciple's mind is set on Jesus. Jesus is Savior and Lord. We said last week that a disciple is not some second tier of believers. Genuine believers are disciples, and disciples are genuine believers. They believe all of who Jesus is with their, all of their lives. They believe that he is Savior and Lord, which means that then they are devoted to Jesus. Because Jesus denied himself and he took up this cross, they follow him in that same pattern of life. Our life becomes a Christ-shaped life. But we have to remember that disciples are not dependent, I'm sorry, are not devoted because they are capable. Disciples are devoted because they are dependent. A disciple doesn't try to be their own Savior and Lord. They don't try to improve themselves through their own effort and try to save their own lives. They go all in, trusting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, with that definition in mind, I hope that you can see that there really is no such thing as someone who is a disciple from birth. Not not one person on the planet can truthfully say, "I, I just always believed in Jesus. I just always followed him. Like, if that's what you tell people, you're either confused or you're lying. And so we want to clear that up today. We want to get clarity on this critical question, how does someone become a disciple? How does someone become a disciple? And maybe you're not a a disciple of Jesus right now, and and you have this question yourself, like, I, I don't even know where the path begins, I need a miracle to guide me there. I need a GPS to get me there. Or, or I'm looking at the path. I've, been, I've heard what you, under, you said last week, Pastor Ben. I, I kind of understood what you said about what a disciple is, but it looks really big. Can you just tell me my first step? Like, what's my next step? Then this sermon is, is absolutely for you today. Now, maybe you've already become a disciple, and I would assume that's a lot of people in this room. And if every person is called to take their next step and they're called to do it together, then that means that you are called as a disciple to help others understand what it means to become a disciple. That's not the pastor's job. That's not just the elder's job. That's not just some evangelist in the church job. That is every single follower of Jesus called to help others know how to become disciples. And you need to have a clear understanding of the ways that God uses us to make disciples. And so if you already are a disciple, this isn't your turn to check out. Lean in and learn how to direct someone else to become a disciple. So often I hear 
believers say, what if I don't know enough? What if I don't know enough? What if I don't know enough? You're going to see today that you have just enough if you are already a disciple. You have plenty. You have more than enough. How does someone become a disciple? Here's our big idea answer for the day. Someone becomes a disciple when God reveals the gospel and they respond in repentance. Simple, right? Someone becomes a disciple when God reveals the gospel and they respond in repentance. God does a miracle to reveal and disciples respond. Today we're going to get a window into what that looked like in the lives of the disciples in Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul was the primary leader of the team who, who planted a church in Thessalonica. And so I just want you to imagine this with me. Just go back to the first century with me. You walk into the town of Thessalonica, which is a city in ancient Macedonia. Um, you just think of like, like the places with like ancient Greek ruins. Like think of that kind of place, although they're not ruins now because you're walking among the first century streets, right? So they have temples to Greek gods, Roman gods, everywhere. And, and you're going there with the intent to make disciples. You just walk into town. Where do you start? Where do you start? Does that feel a little bit overwhelming? Where, where do you start? Often we think, well, well, maybe we should do some nice things for people. We should get them to like us. And then maybe a few years down the road, after they really like us, then we'll just kind of sneak in a word about Jesus, and then they'll really like Jesus too. That's not what Paul did. We read in Acts 17 that Paul started in Thessalonica, where he often started. He went into the synagogue of the Jews. He went to the people who had some familiarity with the concepts that he was sharing and here's how Acts 17 describes what he did. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, that's three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, if you were here last week, doesn't that sound exactly like what Jesus was preaching to the crowds and to his disciples? That the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead? That, that Jesus, the Messiah, had to suffer? That the Son of Man was the suffering servant? It's, it's almost like Paul just took Jesus' message and used it himself. Novel idea. Like, you don't have to come up with it yourself. You, you can just use Jesus' message. It's, it's, it's better than yours, I promise. Now, this was a polarizing message. This was the message in Jesus' day that divided the crowds from the disciples. This was the message in Paul's day that divided the crowds of religious Jews from the true disciples who really believed the Scriptures. It's not the message that you lead with when you just want people to like you. It's not the message that keeps the large crowds coming back. But it is the message you lead with when you want people to know and follow Jesus as his disciple. It's the message that gets you kicked out of most places. 
This is a message that could get you beat up. But it's also the message that makes disciples. And God worked powerfully through Paul's faithful proclamation of the gospel message. Luke reports that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. By the way, Silas is the same guy as Silvanus that John read about this morning. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So in other words, disciples were made. And Luke goes on to tell us that others rejected the message. Over time, the the Jews got jealous and they started a mob and they attacked the homeowner of the guy who housed the house church. Think about one of your GC leaders getting attacked and arrested. He has to pay him off to get out. This was a challenging place to have a new church plant. And Paul and his team had to leave pretty quickly after that event, which is why he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians just a short while later. That's the backstory behind 1 Thessalonians 1 where your Bibles are open now. And and in our study today, we're going to get a more detailed picture of how some of them were persuaded. We get a window into the conversion of these believers. He opens the letter with his customary greeting. He, He recalls the thanksgiving for them, what we prayed through earlier. And then as we pick up in verse four, Paul's in the middle of sharing his thanksgiving. And he's pointing to the reason why they can have faith and hope and love. They've undergone a clear conversion by God's sovereign work in their life. God revealed the gospel and they responded in repentance. So 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and, we became, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, I mean, sorry, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath. Someone becomes a disciple when God reveals the gospel and they respond in repentance. Did you see it? Did you see it yourself? We're going to take a longer look at it right now. We have to understand that that becoming a disciple of Jesus is an act of God. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is an act of God. It's, It's not just something that you decide to do one day. It might seem like that to you at first, but Really, God is the one who is the primary worker. And Paul makes this clear when he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So tell me, come on, tell me, who did the choosing? All right, I needed a little bit stronger than that. You can look at your Bible if you need. You don't have to depend on my word. Verse four, who did the choosing? 
God. God did the choosing. And that can offend our sensibilities, can it? Because we think, wait, wait, wait a minute. If God chooses, then doesn't that mean that we don't need to evangelize? Like, isn't this whole, like, making disciples and purposeful discipleship thing, like, a a non-issue then? But clearly, this passage shows us that, that God doesn't just choose who will become disciples. He chooses how they will become disciples. And he chooses to use his people as his instruments of his saving grace. Sometimes we think, well, well, if God chooses, doesn't that mean we can just kind of live in our sin and, and it doesn't matter because he chose and, and he must just like us the way that we are? But again, this passage shows us that God does not just choose us. He works in us by his Holy Spirit to deliver us from the power of sin. Sometimes we think, well, well, if God chooses us, doesn't that mean that he doesn't choose others who would want to worship him? Like, how is that even fair? But the truth is that none of us would want to worship him on our own. We all reject him in our sin. We all live in rebellion against him, and it requires his choosing. At the bottom line, Paul makes a very clear statement here. God shows you, Thessalonian believers. Believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a true follower of Jesus, God shows you. Take comfort, take heart in that. Take joy in that. God shows you. God shows you. We have to understand that becoming a disciple is not merely a human transaction where one believer shares a set of facts and an unbeliever says, oh, that sounds pretty good to me. And then mentally agrees with it and makes the necessary tweaks in their life. Becoming a disciple is a supernatural act of God where a dead person comes to life by the sovereign grace of God. And a far greater miracle than the GPS getting me to my hiking trail is the miracle of God getting a person to the place where they find the way. And when God is performing that miracle, we should all want to be front and center. Paul is is thankful, and he is convinced that God chose the Thessalonian believers. But we could ask then, how does Paul know How does Paul know that God chose them? How does he know that these people are the ones that God chose? And he answers that question in verse 5. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In verse 5, we see four essential instruments that God chooses to reveal the gospel to the lost. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see that that kind of fleshed out a little bit more. We see four instruments, his word, his power, which I'm going to suggest to you this morning is his empowered people, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. We're going to see how God uses all four of these instruments every time he makes a disciple. Every time 
he makes a disciple. He uses all four. So first, God's revelation of the gospel starts with his word. It starts with his word. Paul says, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word. Now, if the gospel came not only in word, then what must have been included in the way that the gospel came to them? Tell me. Word. Word. Specifically, God's word. Remember Luke's description in Acts 17. Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Later on in 1 Thessalonians 2, he writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They received the word of God. God revealed himself. He revealed his plan of salvation. He revealed his call to discipleship through his word. The Bible is is a story. From beginning to end, Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, the whole story is ultimately God's plan of salvation centering on Jesus Christ. And so Paul and his team just got the word, the scriptures, to the forefront. In Romans 12, Paul writes, So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. For someone to become a disciple, they need to come into contact with the Word of God. They need to come into contact with the Scriptures. They need to hear from God Himself that that He is God and they are not. That He created all things and that we as sinful humanity have rebelled against Him and we deserve eternal separation from God. They need to hear that His mercy and grace, He has made a way for Mankind to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. They need to hear about his compassion and love toward those who rebel against him again and again and again, just like Israel did in the Old Testament. They need to hear that Jesus wasn't some afterthought, but he was the fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning, that he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. They don't need to just understand that from us, They need to hear that from God. They need to hear it and receive it for what it really is, the Word of God itself. We say this often at Oak Hill, uh, the gospel requires words. So that little slogan, uh, we, we don't believe it, it says, share the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. If someone is going to respond to the gospel in Repentance and faith, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Nobody knows from your good works that Jesus is Savior and Lord. It's a great platform to jump off of, but they need to hear the gospel. The gospel requires words. That's the clear pattern in Scripture. But I would take this one step further then and say that they don't just need words of a slick gospel presentation that you come up with. They need the word of God itself. They need the word of God itself, whether that's a few verses that you have the opportunity to share with them or a chapter or a whole book that you work through with them. If you are a disciple who is making disciples, let God speak 
through his word. You can't improve upon it. Take what you're reading and what you're applying in your day-to-day reading of the scriptures and and ask God for an opportunity to share that with others. Let, Let it come out of you naturally in conversation. Use the Bible itself to point others to Jesus. So one of the things that I've started doing in the last year when, when people express interest in our church or Jesus and they, they aren't yet disciples, I, I ask them if they'd be willing to read the Gospel of Mark and discuss it with me. By the way, I'll, I'll share the basic reading plan that I use in the resource email this week, and, and I pray for them. It, 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 it takes a couple weeks for them to read it, and I have them write down some notes along the way, and then I get together with them and Ask them what stood out from what they read. Because I, I don't want to do this myself. Like I want the Holy Spirit leading the way. And, and so he always pulls through, by the way. It's really fun. And then I just use whatever they share as a starting point to get to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And usually I have some key passages picked out like that are really important, like Mark 8 that we studied last week. And, and then once we're done reading the whole book, however long that takes, I just challenge the person with this question. God has revealed himself through this book. He's shown you that Jesus is Savior and Lord. What are you going to do with that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. It has to change your life. So you either believe it or you don't. It's incredibly fun to watch God work through his word. It's incredibly relieving, too takes the pressure off, right? So use the Bible to point others to Jesus. Now, in that, I'm not saying just hand them a Bible and say, you're on your own. I'm also not saying that good deeds or good works shouldn't accompany our message. Paul is clear that that his gospel came to the Thessalonians not only in word, but also in power. In power. I believe this is a reference to how God reveals himself through his empowered people. Through his empowered people. The word for power means ability. And here it's describing how they proclaimed the gospel. It's the power of Christ on display in the lives of his people. So Paul goes on in the rest of verse 5 and he says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So catch this. Paul didn't just teach the words. He demonstrated the powerful effects of those words in his own life and in his team's life. Paul's team modeled the type of dependence and devotion that marks the lives of true disciples. Paul demonstrated the power of God to take a proud Christian murdering Jewish zealot and make him the foremost ambassador for Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. Paul's team demonstrated the power of God to take them out of their comfort zones and and out of what was easy and into new places where they would be hated and ridiculed and where they would preach the gospel. They showed the beauty of the gospel in their good works and their upright character. They lived among the Thessalonians empowered by God, relying upon God. 
believer, does your life demonstrate the power of God to those around you? In your character, can they see the power of God? In the way that you talk about Jesus like he's your whole life. In the way you step out in faith and see him pull through. In the way you you trust him during the hard times. In the way you humbly confess your sin and trust his grace. This is where our, our personal testimonies come in as a believer. First, can you identify Christ's powerful work in your life to bring you to salvation? Can you tell that story? But not only that, our testimonies aren't just our salvation story. They're also in the powerful ways we see Christ working in our day-to-day lives. Changing our desires, affecting our choices. It's important that we learn how to identify the power of the gospel in daily life and then share that with others. Not in a way that says, look at me. But in a way that says, look at Christ's power in me. I'm nothing. He's my everything. Has God ever shown you his power through the transformed life of one of his true followers? Have you ever seen God's power in their lives? Like that's why we were having some time of thanksgiving this morning in that because we want to see that. I bet if you think about it, he has. He's shown his power in the transformed life of the people around you. The gospel came to the Thessalonians through God's empowered people. Paul says in verse 6 that they learned to imitate him in much affliction and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, empowered believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the third way that God reveals his gospel, his Holy Spirit. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So I want you to understand the magnitude of what God uh, and Paul are saying here. That when the gospel is being proclaimed through empowered believers, when you're sharing the gospel with someone and, and disciples are being made, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who is actively and personally at work. God himself is in that moment. That's glorious. He is the one who has inspired the word. He's the one who indwells and empowers believers. And he's the one who does a work in the heart of an unbeliever to bring him from death to life. God himself is doing the work. God the Holy Spirit is the only one who can make dead people come to life. Jesus taught this himself. He was was talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus early on in his ministry. He didn't yet believe, but he was kind of wondering, and eventually he did come to faith. And he said to Nicodemus, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clearly didn't get it. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To become a disciple, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. Born again Christian is not just some checkbox on some census or survey that you take. It's a supernatural transformation of the heart that is performed by God himself. Paul says the same thing in the book of Titus. Kids, if you're doing the fighter verses, you might recognize this from a couple months ago. He says that God, our Savior, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We sang about the mercy of God this morning. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's born again. The Holy Spirit whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Spirit must do a work in our hearts to apply the work of Christ to our lives. He regenerates us. He renews us. And God generously pours out the Holy Spirit on those to whom he is revealing himself. The work of the Spirit was clear in the example of Paul's team and in the imitation of the Thessalonians because they exhibited one specific fruit. See if you can see it in your Bibles there. Fruit of the Spirit, that is joy specifically in the midst of affliction. I'm sure Paul mentions this one because of how uncommon it is and because it was so evident in how they responded to the attack on Jason, their house church host. They responded to this extreme affliction for their faith with joy. Joy is, is not the common response to affliction. Just look around our society right now in the midst of the coronavirus surge. Uh, joy is not exactly the first word that would come to my mind to describe the response going on. And so when you see affliction and you see joy, you know that the Holy Spirit is the culprit. And whenever you see any of the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life, in the midst of hardship, you can know that God is at work. Hardship is the test for the believer. And as the Holy Spirit is working, He's bringing conviction. God reveals Himself fourthly through conviction. Through His conviction. Again, I believe this is talking about the full conviction on behalf of Paul's team. They were fully convinced of the message they proclaimed. But I also believe that this was the full conviction on, the, on behalf of the Thessalonian hearers. They were fully persuaded. They were cut to the heart. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and the coming judgment. Paul and his team were empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus as Savior from sin and the coming judgment. And they were faithful to proclaim his righteous judgment as Lord. The disciple makers were, were convinced and the hearers were convicted. People came to see their sin for what it truly was. It's an offense against a holy God. When we see the gospel proclaimed in other parts of the books of Acts, we, we see the response, what shall we do? That's conviction. That's conviction. It's, it's my belief 
that Jesus really did die for my sin. That I am responsible for my sin against God. That my heart and my actions deserve hell. There is no person ever who has become a disciple of Jesus who is not legitimately convicted of their sin. If Jesus died for our sin, then we must be convinced that sin deserves death. Conviction of sin is the experience that makes us throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. We say, you are Lord, I have, you are everything, I have sinned against you. We say, my, my sin is so great, I cannot save myself. I need Jesus, and I'm willing to submit my entire life to his control. But conviction is also a deep-rooted faith to believe that Jesus really does save us from our sin. And we really do find true and abundant life in him. That's the type of conviction we see took root in the Thessalonians in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8, he says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. The gospel came to them in conviction. They had real, genuine faith that Jesus was Savior and Lord. And it made a dramatic change in their lives. The the news of their faith went forward everywhere. So we have to see here that God is the primary worker in making these Thessalonian people into disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you're overwhelmed by the idea of making disciples this morning, take comfort in that. God is the primary worker in making disciples. Think of it like this. You you ate a a good meal for Thanksgiving, most of you, this week. And I would imagine that all of you used a fork. Now, you probably didn't think too much about your fork, but think about how essential that fork was to your Thanksgiving meal. It wasn't the star of the show, But if you didn't have the fork, think about how you would have mashed potatoes all over your hands and and gravy dribbling down your shirt. The fork was an important part. And as disciple makers, we are the fork. We're the fork. Say it, I'm a fork. It's not about us but we are the utensil that God has chosen to use. He he uses us to get the food of the gospel to people's mouths so that they can taste and see his goodness. He uses us to show off his transforming power in our life. He uses the Holy Spirit who indwells us to lead us in the way that we should go. He uses his conviction that has stirred in our hearts to ignite conviction in other people. God reveals the gospel, but hearers then still need to respond. And in Thessalonica, the response was the only logical response given God's irresistible grace that he has thrown at them. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. How you turn from God to God. I'm sorry. I did that again. Wow. 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Every time Paul showed up in a different town to visit a church, he'd be like, let me tell you a little missionary report. Let me tell you about the work that God is doing in Thessalonica. And they'd be like, oh, you mean the place where they turned from idols and started worshiping the living God? Amazing, I know, I heard about it already. He's like, you just burst my bubble. We've seen how God has already revealed himself to the Thessalonians. Now in verses 9 and 10, we see the central turn of a disciple's response. The disciple's response to the gospel is repentance. Repentance. Someone becomes a a disciple when God reveals the gospel and they respond in repentance. Paul says they turned. They, They did a 180. So their focus was on worshiping idols and they turned and they worshiped the living God. That's repentance. Remember our our definition from last week. It's up on the screen. Repentance means to agree with God about who he is and what he has done in such a way that changes our understanding about who we are and what we must do. Starts with God and who he is and what he's done, and it changes our understanding then about ourselves and what we must do. So repentance starts with our view of God. It's our worship that needs to change. It starts with our awe of who God is. We we need to agree with God that he alone is God, that he alone is worthy of our worship. He's the Lord who saves us. And all of the man-made things that we would devote ourselves to and all of the things that we would depend upon for our security and our identity, all of the ways that we would put ourselves first, all of that is nothing. And we turn from worshiping all of those things and we worship God alone with our lives. That's repentance. It's a reorientation first of our worship. Another way to say it is that it's a reorientation of our dependence and devotion. Remember that definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. And an idol is anything that we're dependent on or devoted to other than Jesus. So it could be another religion. It could be a person or an activity or an item. But it's something we're dependent on for our sense of security and identity. That's an idol. And it's something that we're devoted to serving in our time and our talent and treasure. And in our sin, our natural orientation is to be dependent and devoted to other things, to worship idols. You can't worship God and worship your idols at the same time. And so just like the Thessalonians, all of us must repent. All of us must repent. There is not one person on the planet who does not need to repent. There's not one person whose testimony actually goes like this, like I was always a pretty good person, always believed in Jesus, so I guess I never really had a time where God changed my heart and I needed to turn from worshiping my idols to turn to him. That's impossible. 
Even if you were a child, you needed to come to a realization of your sin and a realization of your need for a Savior. You don't need a Savior if you never sinned. If you are perfect, you can be Lord. But that's not true of any person but Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pretty sure all includes you. And I'm pretty sure it includes me. And that will result in a whole new focus, a whole new trajectory of our lives. Paul says to the Thessalonians that they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God to come. That this is the hope, the hope, the expectancy. Like we saw last week, disciples have their mind set on Jesus. Colossians says that their mind is set above on the things of God, not below on the things of man. Remember the diagram we used last week, the, the trajectory of our focus. The, the crowd had their intention divided between Jesus and the world. They were sort of interested in Jesus as long as he could do something for them. As long as Jesus gave them their idols, they were happy. That's so many people who say they're believers today. Give me Jesus as long as he gives me my idols. But the disciples were focused on Jesus. They denied themselves, they took up their cross, and they followed him. It's the same thing that we see in the trajectory the Thessalonian church, and in every true disciple. Discipleship is about the trajectory of our heart. Are we increasingly looking to Jesus as Savior and Lord? You see, there's this pattern that we begin to see, and this is what we want to begin to draw out in this series. We saw it in the crowds last week. We see it in the Thessalonian church. There's a pattern to becoming a disciple. There's a pattern of moving closer to Jesus. And no one becomes a disciple without first having God reveal the gospel and then responding to him in repentance. So the details of everyone's story, they're a little bit different. The timing is definitely different. But there is a general pattern. And when we begin to see the pattern, it helps us understand where we are in our own discipleship. And it helps us understand how to take the next step in our own walk and then how to help others take the next step as well. You see that? And so let's go back to the, this discipleship pathway and ask, have you responded to the gospel in repentance and faith? Have you responded in repentance and faith? Can you point to a time in your life where you fully, fully turned from your sin and put your trust and your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord? There's a, a few questions in your notes to guide you in this. If, if, if you answer that question with a no, Identify the ways that God has been revealing the gospel to you, even today. His word, his empowered people, his Holy Spirit, his conviction. God is getting a hold of you. He's trying to get a hold of you. And don't let that conviction pass you by. Lean into that. 
Identify the things that you are worshiping instead of Jesus and then consider how Jesus is better and more powerful than all of them. And then confess that as sin. Confess that idolatry is sin and worship Jesus alone as Lord. Confess your need for him as Savior. You can't do this on your own. And then if you've done that, Talk to a believer about that step that you've taken. The next step after that is baptism. And we have an opportunity for that coming up at the, at the end of December. We would love to see you baptized and, and committing your life publicly to the Lord, identifying publicly with Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, like we said last week, praise God for his salvation and authority in your life. And consider the four ways that God reveals his gospel, his word, his empowered people, the Holy Spirit, and his conviction. And how can you grow in your understanding of these things? How can you grow in your understanding of the word to share the gospel from it? What ways do you see God's power in your life as an example to unbelievers in, in your character, in your priorities? And, and then how can you share those things as a matter of personal testimony? Maybe write out some practical ways that you can see God working in your life and then talk to an unbeliever about that. Ask God for an opportunity for that. And as you do, rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. He's, he's working in you. He's, he's working in the people God is calling to himself. And, and it's not on you to come up with the right answers or the right words. Develop your conviction that the gospel is true and that it is the power of God for salvation and then go all in on that. See, when we live a life of repentance and faith, we can then best help others to see how to come to repentance and faith. Church, let's rely on Jesus. Let's walk in his way together. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.